Welcome back to Simon and Whiten, the podcast that discusses media, politics, and business. I'm Christian Whiten, joined as always by Mark Simon. Mark, say hello. Hey, everybody. Well, a lot going on, Mark, including in the media, the New York Times, a.k.a. Pravda. No, I'm kidding. New York Times, great company, profitable company, uh, not failing, yeah. as uh, a former president predicted. Apparently, New York Times has bought The Athletic for $550 million, bucks, uh, as Fox Business wrote. As of the most recent quarter, the Times has nearly 8.4 million subscribers. It's been diversifying its coverage with lifestyle, advice, games and recipes, helping a counter a pullback from politics driven news traffic uh, that was part of the boom of politics in 2020. Fox Business in its article about this acquisition <laughs> had a very funny quote from Alex, uh, I think it's Mather or Mather, the co-founder of The Atlantic. He said in 2007 interview with The Times that, quote, we will wait every local paper out and let them continuously bleed until we are the last one standings. We will suck them dry of their best talent at every moment. We will make business extremely difficult for them. Again, that's Alex Mather of The Athletic, which the New York Times just bought. Mark, this, this actually checks a bunch of boxes that you've always been big on, which, first of all, is, uh, I think, going a little bit beyond news to what draws in an audience to uh, you know <laughs> feel like they're sort of more uh, a part of a religion or something. Yeah. Um, I, yeah. I don't get, I, I didn't get the buy. I, I didn't understand it. Look, 550 million bucks. So basically you paid, they got 450 journalists in the athletic. So you basically, you paid about 1.1, 1.2 million per journalist. But here's the problem. It lost about 55, according to, uh, uh, Barclays capital, the, uh, uh, who did an analysis of the deal? It, the Athletic lost fifty-five million dollars last year. That's essentially about one hundred and twenty thousand dollars per employee they lost. <laughs> so, in other words, how are you? And they go, "Oh, it's promotion, and we'll be able to pull it back." All right, you pull back fifty percent of this, but it's five hundred and fifty million dollars. Uh, I'm a big fan of the New York Times. I think it's got one of the better business models there are. Uh, I think they've got 8.4 million subscribers to their news product and another million. They're coming up close to 10 million with all their products. It, it's, it's kind of, people call it the death star. Um, unfortunately, I think they found, they have designed in their own implosion device as we have with the death star, you know, <laughs> where the little thing can get down. And what happened is, is there's arrogance here. Here's the problem. The New York Times doesn't understand sports. They have no idea about sports. I used to subscribe to The Athletic, but the problem is The Athletic's not about sports. The Athletic's is about the politics of sports. Oh, God. It's, it's basically, some guy had a great line. He said, and if, 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 our listener, if people don't know who this is, the guy said it's like listening to jock talk written. In other words, it's basically like some guy said, somebody trying to have a hot take of the latest ESPN are the latest morning sports radio fan 101. I, 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 if you look at it, they do not do two things that sports have to do. First of all, they don't really have a passion for the sports. They take an incredibly critical eye towards the sports, much like Deadspin. And Deadspin really, sports people like to read the garbage. You know, it was it, what happened with Deadspin is, you know, it was all the scandals and everything like that. But really, it didn't offer much to a sports fan. So essentially, they don't really cover the game. 
they do know a little bit about the game, but they're not really into the actual sports. They're not fan, fans read sports because they want to know about their team. They're pulling for their team. They want to know how they're going to win. And the second group, very important group, is gamblers. People mm. want to know how to bet. Mm-hmm. And the athletic, I've seen it. It doesn't do much of anything. But that's the point. The New York Times, like, oh, this, you know, this fits in with our Upper West Side crowd. I mean, come on. The, other than other than these guys, you know, dressing up and going to a a, a a Knicks game, you know, because they want to be seen on the sideline. New York is a sports town, but it's a sports town for the New York Post. It's a sports town for the Daily News. It's sports fans, and the Athletic doesn't appeal to sports fans because I'm a sports fan and I read it. And I'm going, okay, that's interesting. There are some wonderfully good articles really in there about sports. I mean, in terms of the structure and things like that, they've got some very good writers who understand that. But overall, no, it's not there. And, and also they're very PC, which sports fans are not. So, for mm-hmm. example, they're, they think it's wonderful that we have transgender swimmers. <laughs> and they think it's one. Sports fans, that's not sports fans. Sports fans are mostly men, by, by the way. And the women who are sports fans are incredibly conservative women. It is a myth. The liberal woman, and I have a very long-time person I've known with a major sports league. I don't want to say it because I think people might figure it, figure it out. And he has said they spent hundreds of millions of dollars in his career there chasing like single moderate liberal women to like watch their sport. And he said, it's the greatest waste of money ever. They don't like it. You can tell it's football, but I mean, they don't like it. And, 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 and it's not, it's not going to happen. Wellesley college is not going to open up a, uh, you know, they're not going to have football night. It's not yeah, what's going to happen. They, they can play Smith and Bryn Mawr. But the thing is, is like that's 550 million bucks. There was a lot of different ways to spend it. And at the end of the day, some very smart people at the Wall Street, at, at, at the New York Times. They're very smart. They know what they're doing. They're very good. They've made a fundamental mistake. We will see the athletic. Um, they will find some way to justify the purchase five, six, seven years out. They will immediately write down, probably in the next two or three years, probably write it down. It'll probably be worth 55, 60 millions, and it'll be incorporated into the, uh, into the page. I know they plan to do local sports. That's one of the things they hope to do. Right. I'm not so sure that, that mo- the way they do sports is what people want. You know what I'm saying? So, right. Yeah, what I'm hearing is the last time the New York Times did sports well, they were reporting on polo matches in Long Island uh, you know, before Levittown was constructed. Which is, was, was which is fine. Which yeah. is fine. Go with what you know. Go with, yeah. I mean, I think sometimes New York Post, I mean, I think Wall Street Journal has some very good sports reporting on the business of sports. And I think a lot of times that the, the, the New York Times writes some very good stuff. And they have a lot of good reporters there. But I'm, I'm sorry, you know, <laughs> you're not going to be a sports page. It's not going to be there. Right. What do you think overall, though, still? And I think in the past you've been an investor in The New York Times, um, yeah. if I'm correct. So, you know, you still they're approaching 10 million subscribers um, and you do have this this this, you know, you go there and it's always a little bit weird. You see their opinion writers. I think only one or two out of about 20 are smiling in their photos because they are very serious people. But you do have the mix of recipe, lifestyle, you know, all the, the passions that liberals spend a great deal of time worrying about. Um, and, uh, you know, essentially, if you're trying to replace God with politics, it's uh, not such a bad product. Are you still are you still bullish on them as a company setting aside yeah. politics? 
I, I think there's really three or four major news organizations that are going to do well. I think the New York Times is actually very strong. They know their demographic. They know what they're doing. You, you basically just summed it up. I think the Wall Street Journal is still very strong. They have a few issues. Um, I think really trying to be a little bit too broad. I wish they would go back to their core, understand who they're uh, understand who who reads it and, you know, and, and cater to that market. And I think they'd be fine. I think Bloomberg, because they sell terminals and they can do a few things, they'll be in the financial world. And I think Reuters will always be out there and, and will be there. And believe it or not, I think if CNN does their revamp, I think the brand is still strong enough that if they do hard news and get away from the crazy drunk people at night and all that stuff, I think CNN probably and, of course, Fox will be fine. I'm not seeing a lot of shakeups. I mean, you know my opinion about BuzzFeed. BuzzFeed is basically their business model is upper middle class white people who are subsidizing their workforce because they sent their kid to Fordham or to NYU at 75 grand a year. And then BuzzFeed's paying them $47,000 a year to live in New York City. It's 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 there's nothing really going there. And I think the other thing that's happening, too, is. Maybe we just need five or seven or eight major national media organizations that, in other words, let's be blunt. I mean, if there's a terrorist attack or a fire or something like that, do you really need more than seven or eight different media organizations there? I'd even make the argument you don't really need that many more at the White House, to be honest with you. Right. Um, and I've made the argument at the White House for years. Nobody listen to me cares what I think, but I'd rather have like, 15 have the same reporters there all the time, you know what I'm saying? So they can actually drill down in questions and not have this 75, 100 rotating through that basically they get one question and then they get to come back three weeks later and ask it, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> right. Um, and follow up. But the thing is, is like, I don't believe that there's really a lot of people coming that are going to offer something because I believe most people are going down these rabbit holes. In other words, if you're really interested in uh, democratic politics, uh, you're going to find people on Substack. You're going to find the blogs. You're going to find it there. You know what I'm saying? And then you'll come back for your general news. Um, I wish I could fully understand uh, uh, what's happening with consumption habits, but I believe the future for media happens to be with consumption habits and not with content. I think content's the same. It's always the same. It's, you know, conservative, liberal, this. It's going to be who can guess people's consumption habits. What, how are they consuming media? A lot of us assume that, you know, basically you go to the New York Times and, you know, that and I think that's behind, we'll, we'll also get our our people who who love sports. No, the fact of the matter is the guy who's the liberal college professor who's reading the New York Times and loves it online and stuff like that. But he's a Big Ten basketball fanatic. He goes to the Big Ten sites to read basketball. You know, he's not gonna, he's not at the New York Times for basketball. Right. You know, if you're really into specializing, then there's yeah, no amount that's, that's sort of this and there's, broad and there's brush. So, and there's so much more out there. And I'm, you know, I, 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 I would hope one day we would be one fiftieth, one five hundredth of the size of Joe Rogan. You know what I'm saying? But yeah. the simple fact of the matter is, he has changed a lot. There's a lot, a lot changing now. And I, I think the fact is, his content really hasn't changed too much. And nobody's bringing, I, I don't see what you're going to bring new to content. You know, different opinions, maybe, who knows? I doubt it. I don't see it. I think what's going to happen is it's going to be distribution and it's going to be, you know, what is the consumption patterns? Who can figure out what people are consuming? 
Huh, well that actually, yeah, gives you a lot to think about as you try and think through what the future of media is. It's amazing how, as far as industries go, of course they go through change, but uh, media seems to have been in a state of chaos, um, yeah. uh, you know, some good, some bad, since about 2000. Um, and, and, and there's uh, a lot of vanity stuff out there, too. I mean, I love Bloomberg. Mm-hmm. I think Bloomberg actually is not a vanity project. Their opinion pages are, but the, the rest yeah. of it's not. But, you know, the Washington Post is getting actually pretty silly these days. I mean, I mean, you watch Jeff Bezos. I mean, he, he's the owner of a newspaper. It's a major newspaper. They're trying to be serious people. And, you know, we've got he and his girlfriend, basically his girlfriend, hitting on Leonardo DiCaprio. And then, you know, he's off in St. Bart's with his, showing us what a great <laughs> body he has. And, you know, they're playing grab ass in front of the paparazzi. They know the paparazzi. He's, he's, you know, he, he's the head of, he's the head of a, a newspaper that's there. And then, you know, the other day, they promoted a guy to the, one of the top editor positions, and and it's, there's all over Twitter that he's being sued as part of a thing. So you know, and that's from his own people are tweeting it, and then you've got you know this fact checker who's always in the news. Uh, they've got these crazy Ruben woman. I can't remember who. And I'll say that oh, Ruben Jen, woman, Jen Rubin, Jennifer yes. Ruben. She's crazy, yeah. and and they She's have it. And and I think the thing is, it's like, and and I just I wonder. What the brand is, and you know, I really think that basically, you know, he, I, I worked for a guy, and one of the things that we were always incredibly conscious of at Apple Daily was we, Jimmy's not a sugar daddy. He's not a sugar daddy. You know, his, his that paper is supposed to make money, um, and it yeah. made money for a long, long time. And then the communist had something to say about that. But you know, we also were like a newspaper. We had the same we had the same trials and tribulations of everybody else. Right. Right. Well, shifting gears, um, but still in sort of the marketability of ideas here, IPOs in 2021, excuse me, in 2021 were, as it turns out, disappointing. This happens kind of frequently at the end of a business cycle. According to the Wall Street Journal, quote, nearly 400 traditional IPOs, along with an additional, get this, 600 special purpose acquisition company launches, SPACs, as of course they are known, um, inundated fund managers and analysts this last year, with many saying that not a day went by without a formal call or pitch. Uh, and, um, you know, we don't have, uh, I haven't seen at least now final numbers, but through the last, uh, at least through the first eight months of 21, IPO shares rose. However, November, um, they were still trading up 12% on average. The uh, steam is coming off. And then uh, by late December, they traded 9% below their IPO prices. Let me throw this together with, with another story, but it's related. Another sign that a bubble may be ready to deflate or, or pop. ARK, A-R-K-K, it's yeah. an ETF. Um, so uh, ARK Innovation by Kathy Wood, who seems to be in the media a whole lot, finally yes. off by 14% just in the last month. And the correction is significantly larger if you go back a few more months. And so she just buys sort of the flavor of the month, um, the biggest it girl of whatever is out there in equity and predicts that the world is changing. So sky high valuations don't matter. Top holdings, Tesla, Teladoc Health, Coinbase Global, Unity Software, Roku and Zoom. Um, so, you know, you, you look at these things and I've been preaching this long. So I don't know if I jumped the gun or if I'm will just be proven wrong. But it seems, you know, it's sort of like 2000. The Fed floods the economy and the market with capital. When Y2K didn't happen then, it pulled back. That sparked uh, the dot-com crash. It would take, I think, a decade for NASDAQ to get back to its highs. Do you think we're just right at the, the, the beginning of, of this potentially happening again, at least with the high flyers that we're seeing? Well, I got a couple of questions for you. First of all, did you see any SPAC that really caught your eye? 
Not one that I would invest in. Of course, you know, there's the one that acquired Donald Trump's <laughs> media company. We've talked about that. It popped 20 percent this week. I think it's down 10 percent uh, at the end of the week here. Um, but that is sort of like a meme-driven um, stock. I think you'd say it's people who like Trump and think the media company will be something. I think it'll end up as a joke. But um, aside from that one, I, I, you know, none really leap to mind. I mean, but but was it? I mean, the, to me, the overall theme of 2020 and 2021 has been one thing: still COVID, and mm-hmm. essentially, you know, it's the climb out of COVID. So, you know, when we look at what what shares people are looking at and what things, I mean. You know, I bought New York Times and I bought News Corp, which is the Wall Street Journal, based on COVID. And, um, you know, SAAS stocks, which I was big on, I bought on COVID. Um, made a few other mistakes in here now and then, you know what I'm saying? But, you know, I'll give you an example. I I, I really hate the SPACs. I hate them. I just hate them. Yeah. I, I, think, I think, you know, when you see, you know, A-Rod, A-Rod SPAC, and then you see... <laughs> The guy from Shake Shack, the Shake Shack Shack, Shake Shack Shack. It, it it really there's something about them that's absolutely corrupt. I mean, I'm, I'm I'm I become a communist leftist when I see those things because it's like a con man. You know what I'm saying? In other words, you you, you almost mm-hmm. are like you know would would they roll their wagon through town, and I feel like the sheriff that has to walk out and say keep on going to the next town before they sell their you know, collant their tonics and their, you know, illegal mixes and all that stuff. It it was just such a con. And I think one of the things that we really, uh, that I just couldn't find one. I, people would tell me you're missing this, you're missing this. And I'm like, I don't get it. And then it brought out the worst in people. Just like you said, like, Oh, Trump's up 52% and Trump's down 43%. He's up to you know that's not a way to live your life. The, the vast majority of us, even myself, we don't. I don't. I don't. You know, I don't live off my stock market earnings. I have a job. I run companies. You know what I'm saying? And so, um, or oversee companies. And so, the point really being is to this day, and 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 as we consider it, there is really very little, very very little, that. How would I say? There's really very little that I saw in anything, in IPOs or anything else that really made me wonder. I mean, we saw some IPOs, the Brooks Brothers IPO that, that, that you know, was canceled the other day. Um, it's Brooks Brothers and a few other stores forever and all those. And I was actually watching that when I was saying, hey, this might be kind of interesting because I think maybe they might, you know, there's maybe they could hold on to some real estate and that gives them a natural advantage, believe it or not, I'm in my mind, in the in the online retail world, if you actually have a little bit of real estate um, that people can come in and see your stuff. But, you know, what's what's all that exciting about it in 2020, 21? There's nothing. And so I, I think it was kind of a blase year. And, uh-huh. you know, I mean, people like, oh, you know, we really recovered. I go, yeah, but we, you know, we were flat on our back. You know, right. it's like today they announced a 3.9% unemployment rate. Great. But how many people are not looking for work? The vast majority yeah. of the, the Five million. Five million decrease in workforce. And, 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 you can't, and then we can't find people. So that tells you something wrong. And, and, you know, the inflation number is a lot worse than people think it is. It's a lot, yeah. lot worse. And and, and, and it's, it's inflation is such an evil. I mean, I think, you know, I, I remember reading some stuff by Paul Volcker. It's just, it, the damage that it does to like really the the, the bottom seventy percent of Americans. I should say the bottom, the majority of Americans. 
you know, the top 30%, yes. we pay a little bit more for everything. The top 10%, you know, well, the gas cost me a little bit more. But, you know, I, for some reason, I took a picture the other, I, I was going through some things and I had a picture of gas from 2018, no, uh, uh, November 2018. I don't know why I had the picture on my phone, but I had it. And it was a BP station. It was, the gas was $2.29. It's the station right up the road from me. So I said, I was driving by. I saw it. I looked at it. I sent it to my brother. I was driving by it today. Gas is three dollars and seventy-four cents, and that's one of the that's one of the more reasonable stations around. That's a gas. That's a that's a gas station mm-hmm. that people go to. You know what I'm saying? So imagine yeah. you go from two something to three seventy. You know, so I'm filling up a I'm filling up a Discovery Range Rover. You know, and so usually it would cost me $65. Now it's costing me $88, mm-hmm. you know, or $89. So I, I can afford that. But by the fact of the matter is the guy who's delivering pizzas, he's got a, he's got a huge hit coming. So yeah. I do think I well, do, just I, think of how much, yeah. uh, you know, if you have to far, if you have to drive a tractor across a field, yeah. <laughs> I mean, all of the inputs to so much of the economy depend on gas and energy. I, I just, I'm just, I'm, I guess I'm just, I'm just. The stock market to me, the last two years has been me. You know, did really well on some SAAS stocks. Did really well, um, you know, on the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times. But I think that's over for a while. But I, I really, yeah. I'm looking now where to be. I just don't know where to be. Well, another, another one that both you and I are in, yes. I think, and we uh, talked about it and, and made light of it uh, on a previous episode. It's Rio Tinto, the mining company. Um, and uh, they're up 13% in the last month. So that's a little startling. It's great when you own, own shares of the company. It's up that much. But I sort of viewed it as a stable company where the stock would be mostly flat. But they have a shocking 9.5% dividend. This is uh, technically, I believe, an English, a UK company. But a lot of their stuff is in Australia and Southeast Asia and elsewhere. Mining. Um, you know, uh, you talk about ESG. I think the E stands for what? Environments. The S for sustainability. Yeah. The G for governance. So I propose uh, changing the acronym where the E is evil, <laughs> the S is slash and burn, and the G maybe gouge. Uh-huh. I don't know, still working on it. But, you know, I want a company that's evil that will slash and burn the rainforest and gouge customers to produce profits. No, I'm kidding. Kidding, of course. But <laughs> I don't know. You So, um, Rio, are we, we, we didn't say not to invest in this. We sort of said they have a CEO who is a panda hugger. He's a former Canadian yeah. ambassador to um, China. But, you know, probably that's just a little bit of window dressing. And, in fact, this company has a bright future. I mean, look, Barton is going to he, he, he likes money more than Anybody else? He likes money as much as everybody else, so he's going to do what he has to do. And uh, you know, when you're giving out a nine percent dividend, and when you're you know growing the way they're growing, and when you have the employee, one of the things about them when you have the employee profit participation plans that they have there, you know, and you're dealing with miners. I don't think the chairman. I don't think he's going to show up with the Green New Deal there. You know, if he wants to walk out <laughs> of the meeting live. Um, so right. I I I I like the company. I still like the company. I still think it's a buy. Um, I, when I, when I see a dip after this month, which I think we will, it, it's going to go, look, I think any natural resources company, for whatever reason it is, is going to be doing well. Now, part of it is just going to be frankly that, you know, look at electric cars and look at things we're doing now in terms of, um, in terms of moving away from combustible engines that is going to take new and different types of minerals that I'm not smart enough to describe or to work with, but I know someone's going to have to go get them. 
And I think Rio Tinto right. and some of these other mining companies are there. Mining, though, is, as I always tell people, I said, you know, to me, I think you pick the big guys, you pick the winners. Because the one thing I, I do know about the mining industry is it is the land of, like, failed wildcatters where the big guys just, like, you know, it's almost like those yeah. movies, like, you know, oh, we almost made it. You know, um, you know, <laughs> I mean, it, like, you know, what a guy told me one time, have you ever seen that Daniel Day-Lewis, there will be blood, you know, <laughs> the oil movie? A guy told me they could have done the same exact movie and they could have used mining could have been he said exactly same thing you know it's right. like when you watch the, yeah there's got to be big economies of scale <laughs> just favor the big guys that's like my favorite thing about the national geographic channel i want i love about the discovery channel and the national geographic channel what i love about them is is that you know oh you know we're the nature channel or whatever it is and their biggest shows are like you know cut the forest down <laughs> That's mining, right. <laughs> you know, gold mass, mining and mass fishing, Western Australia, crabbing, yeah. you know, big, big machines that, you know, burn a lot of gas. You know what I'm saying? You know, completely ridiculous, unjustified projects in China. You know, there's a guy up there who does all these giant projects in China and he always gets like a little, he gets, I, I, I don't think anybody catches. It. He goes, so uh, we're building this for $2 billion. And you say every day, 3,000 cars will cross for $2 billion every day. <laughs> you know, and if you listen to him, he's going like, there is no return on investment here at all. You know, you could run a ferry, you could run a scene of ferries back and forth, and it would be, you know, more economical. But, you know, and, and so the thing mm -hmm. is, I, I just, I think getting back to Rio Tinto, I think people should look for companies, uh, Solano, is another company I'm starting to look at right now. I think that's a very interesting company. Um, but I think they're going to have these ups and downs of regulatory, but it's not going to affect the overall operations. You open up a mine, you've opened up a mine for 20 years. You know what I'm saying? And, yeah. and you know, you look at these things. And, and the other thing, too, is is that one of the one of the proxies for this business is actually Caterpillar. And, oh, and, and even yeah. to a degree, Volvo a little bit. Some of some of the big, some of the big Mitsubishi and some other ones, and just watch their orders and watch their order books. And you know, basically, Caterpillar is selling everything they can get out the door right now. You know, and and I think that's going to continue for for the large mining equipment. Mm -hmm. I don't know about the other things. I just saw something, and I I there is I would tell people where to find it, but. That's my little piece of insider information. So screw you. <laughs> Go find <laughs> yeah. it yourself. So the opposite, the opposite end of the vehicle spectrum from a cat is Tesla. Uh, we mentioned them earlier. Tesla opened a showroom in, wait for it, in Xinjiang. Yeah. That's the part of China where the Uyghurs live in their one to two million of them in yeah. political concentration camps. This, they, they opened this just as the U.S. law limiting imports from that region kicked in. Uh, as reported by the Wall Street Journal, Tesla announced, quote, on this last day of 2021, we meet in Xinjiang. In 2022, let us together launch Xinjiang on its electric journey. <laughs> and the posting was accompanied by pictures from an opening ceremony that had traditional Chinese lion dances, people posing with placards, reading, quote, Tesla, heart, Xinjiang. I, mean, uh, I think Elon Musk actually dispensed with his public uh, relations people, which might not be the worst thing in the world to do, especially if, if you attract as much media as him, why not just do what you want to do? On the other hand, this, this, I mean, this seems like a tinny or even by the standard of U.S. corporations that do business in China. Uh, are these guys nuts? Um, I have a different view on this. 
I think it's like, you know, everybody discovered that Apple had cut that $252 billion deal with the Chinese. And I think what we learned was that essentially this deal was opened in 2016. It was probably planned in 2013 and 14. And I, I think what we have to remember is these things take a long, long time to come to fruition. And the same thing with Tesla. Um, this thing was planned in Xing'an in 2017, 2018, you know, as part of their franchise agreements. He does not own it. It's yeah. a franchise. And so what are you going to do? It's like, to me, it's no different really for Elon Musk um, than FedEx having offices in Jing'an or Chevrolet or somebody else. That said, the optics are horrible. The optics are probably as bad as they could get. I mean, unless they would take a Uyghur and flog them as the op part of the opening ceremony. <laughs> but I mean, it was awful optics, but I don't think Elon right. Musk had a thing that he could do to stop it. I think he is up yeah. there, he's trapped. And I think what we're starting to see is, I call it franchise capitalism in China. In other words, basically Tesla is just gonna become one thing. Tesla is gonna become a franchise. In other words, everything will be designed in the U.S. All the talent will be in the U.S. All the marketing will be in the U.S. Everything, in a way, much like Apple is, except for they will manufacture that in 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 in, in China. And from a shareholder structure, maybe we just treat it as like that's a franchise. In other words, this is Tesla. Tesla's everywhere, and this is our. This is our China franchise, and and all the good stuff is there. The, the the big loser here is China, because you know the big loser is going to be China in that the technology, the development, the knowledge, and the know how is not going to go not be shared in China. It's just going to be a place where you where you sell it. Um, I, I uh -huh. use that as a business model because back in the days, um, if you go around with the luxury brands in southeast asia if you go to singapore and you go to singapore hong kong dubai now shanghai tokyo if you're dealing with lvmh or someone like that it's all lvmh people it's top-notch people it's you know it's all the people they're feeding back show up in taipei manila so they're franchisees you know and 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 so there's no real talent. It's just basically shop people and stuff like that. And I think that's what China's going to head for if they can't really turn around the human rights stuff. Are they going to kick Tesla out? I think probably not. But I think if they do, the payoff for Tesla would be, quite frankly, um, no Chinese cars coming to the U.S. And that yeah. could that could be yeah. part of it, you know. And and Tesla could. You know, there. I, I just, I just, and with the U.S. treating test, treating Chinese car manufacturers hostile. So I, I'm hoping that Elon Musk is not there. Unfortunately, I think Elon Musk will be caught up in this in a matter of, um, will be caught up in this in a matter of weeks. It'll be full on with him. Interesting. Yeah, well, it's going to be a big year for, for business in China, good and bad, in the sense you have the Olympics coming up and, you know, perhaps more importantly, a big party Congress where Xi Jinping will probably once again crown himself yeah. as uh, paramount leader for life.
we'll talk about that more as it as it arrives. Uh, finally, a quick story here. CBC, which I uh, seem to recall is Canada's version of PBS, maybe worse. A reporter there, Tara Henley, quit the increasingly left-wing Canadian public broadcaster. She wrote on Substack, quote, When I started at the National Public Broadcaster in 2013, the network produced some of the best journalism in the country. By the time I resigned left last month, it embodied some of the worst trends in the mainstream media. In a short period of time, the CBC went from being a trusted source of news to churning out clickbait that reads like a parody of the student press. Uh, those of us on the inside know just how swiftly and how dramatically the politics of the broadcaster have shifted. Uh, it used to be, and this is the funny part, it used to be that I was one of the farthest to the left in any newsroom, occasionally causing strain in story meetings with my views on issues like the housing crisis. I am now easily the most conservative, frequently sparking tension by questioning identity politics. This happened in the span of about 18 months. My politics did not change. I mean, that's pretty amazing. Um, someone who was a lefty on the left side of a public broadcaster in Canada, granted it's Canada, um, you know, this, the change that happened that quickly. Uh, you do a lot of business in Canada. What do you think? Um, I usually don't watch the CBC for that reason when I'm in Canada. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I think what is amazing is when she talks about things. Like, for example, I'm married to a Filipino woman. My, we have Filipino relatives. You know, I've lived in the Philippines. And my wife heard the term that she, this Headley, Headley made fun of. She made fun of the term Filipinex. And I told my wife Filipinex, <laughs> and it took like 10 minutes for it. You know, we're, what's, what, now what does she mean by Filipinex? Is that this, you know, and, the, and my, my daughter, is, my Mary is explaining to her what's going on and all these things. And, and I, I think the thing is, is that what she really learned, and I think what people have to look at, is identity politics has really nothing to do with identity politics. It has everything to do with gaining advantageous positions in the office. It's all about advantage now. It's like they pull it out, and as a manager, I've unfortunately seen it a couple of times. I'm blessed in the fact that I worked in a Taiwanese at a Hong Kong company where I was the only white guy for a long time. And But we would, I would see the mentality come out um very amusingly usually in like chinese american or chinese brits british chinese or canadian chinese they would often just say things that you would see the rest of the staff just like look at them like you know what's what's this or what's that and you know in other words they would they would start talking about things like i, I still remember you know, when the riots were going on, the BLM riots, you know what I'm saying? Um, mm -hmm. Quite frankly, it, it was an indicator of how Hong Kong people feel about riots. They don't really like them, you know, and, and, and we'd have right. these Chinese Americans, you know, uh, trying to explain to the staff why it's okay to riot. And you'd look at these people and they would be like, no, I don't think it's okay to riot. But to me, I handily, I know who she is. Um, you know, after I saw this, I went back and I go, okay, that's her, that's her. She is a liberal. She is. She is. A, you know. She, by 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 our standards, she's far left. We probably wouldn't have a nice dinner with her, but she seems like a nice person. And I think the real thing is, is I think what happens is, is that basically, she sees this being used as a weapon. And I think that's coming out more and more now. And I think that's going to be a real problem, um, you know, for people. But I, I don't understand how you can. 
it's it's going to come to a head in many many ways, and I think it's going to I think it's going to it's for companies. Um, you have to be really careful about it. It's the reason why I think Twitter is is really shafted. I think the one thing that Jack Dorsey really failed on is when I talk to people who know it, they he's allowed that culture to be taken over by basically the crazy people, you know. And I think that's in part why he left it. You know, he's kind of like the guy who let everybody in and tried to work with everybody. And then all of a sudden, one day, he doesn't control things. And I think the new CEO is probably going to find himself in real trouble within a year because they're blocking, they're banning everybody. They're blocking everything. Right. So what do you do? I don't, I don't, I don't know how this you move forward with everything being a check on someone's identity and nothing being a check on someone's performance. You know, I mean, it right. doesn't matter. It's a, it's, yep. it, performance is almost a secondary thing. When we've talked about this, you know, it's it's the reason why. Look at Harvard. Look at Harvard Medical School. Harvard Medical School is going to go get substandard students, no matter what now, because they've got to get substandard students. They've got to graduate a certain number of minority students, and Chinese don't tolerate, don't count anymore. You know, James, the, my son James said, Dad, if I go out to Washington State in California, I'm white. You know, he's Chinese. <laughs> my son's gone white because I'm classified <laughs> as that. And, and why is that? I mean, he's a minority. Chinese are a minority in this country. It's because basically they've done a little bit too well. They're making a little bit too much money. And so, therefore, they're going to be pushed aside by the people who, who, uh, who are using – Basically, they use this stuff as, as an advantage in the office. And any manager will tell you, you see it. I do think they're on the downside now. I think, you know, probably a couple of years ago and a year ago, it was just constantly moving up where it became hard to manage. Yeah. I think now, now the performance issues are so great and that people see it right away. I, I still remember it wasn't my company. It was a company we were invested in. We saw somebody pull this pull this up uh, they pulled this on the company and they got a really rude shock because the company was like no that's fine you can leave you two can leave they just told them and they were like what and they go no no if that's what you feel about us and they 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 became aggressive because the point was the guy said if i give if we give in on this and he came to the i wasn't on the board we were an investor he came to if i give in on this it's all over you know if i somehow if i somehow say that there's implicit bias in the company and and this guy what, what drove him crazy was this guy was asian american you know what i'm saying and he comes from an incredibly i mean his father runs really a shop you know what i'm saying i mean his father's a was a was a teacher in india and you know they were not they're not wealthy people and he runs up they run i don't want to say who he is but he runs a small shop He's a shopkeeper. He's the son of a shopkeeper. And, uh, you know, he worked his ass off and he went to a really good school and, you know, and he's got a company now that's worth investing in. And then somebody came in and they told him that he was a male and he was part of the dominant. And, you know, they didn't feel that he should be making the calls on some of these things. And he was, he and his partner said, you're out of here. His partner, by the way, which is even, which is even funnier, um, his, his, his partner is a French Vietnamese guy. 
you know, mother's, 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 mother's Vietnamese, father's French, you know, but he looks like he's, and, and, uh-huh. and the point is, it just got to the point, it's just ridiculous. And I think that's the problem that people have with this these days. It just right. gets ridiculous. I mean, one last celebrity reference, you guys, I mean, of course we follow Dave Chappelle, you know what I'm saying? And and you saw he had that guy, Patton Oswalt, who I'm not a big fan of, I think he's kind of a jerk. You know, Patton Oswalt and him are friends, and Patton Oswalt said, hey, I'm with my friend Dave Chappelle, and then he got roasted on Twitter, and he sold his friend out. So I, I don't like all this stuff because I think it's horrible stuff. You know what I'm saying? And also, it's people on Twitter. Who cares what people on Twitter say? That's yeah. That's fundamentally important. It's realizing that a Twitter mob is is first of all, you don't know how many of those are just bots, uh, right. or you know, it's 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 not real. Just ride it out. Um, yeah, and you know it's interesting with so much disruption in the economy from the actual virus, then the sort of politically induced freakouts around the virus, and all the government money that was thrown in uh, by the Fed, by Congress, etc. You know, we'll we'll see. But compounding that is this move away from meritocracy and promotion of a lot of people who, frankly, didn't earn it. So. Um, you know, we'll see the, the product of that. It's all the time we have left for this episode. Thanks for watching. If you enjoyed watching or listening as much as we enjoyed making it, please subscribe or go over to Apple Podcasts. Leave us a comment. We'll be back again very soon with another episode of Simon and White. Thanks.